Episode 42 The Judgments That there is a final judgment is indisputable when we look at Scripture, the words of Christ Himself, and we'll do that in a moment. But first, it's important to look at reasons just based on the nature of freedom, which we talked about in a previous episode, What is Freedom? So go listen to that episode for some background here. But in that episode, we talked about how freedom is for good. That freedom is not just the ability to choose, but it is the ability to choose the good. That having freedom imposes upon us an obligation to choose the good and to avoid evil. That, along with the fact that we showed that there is objective morality, that is, there is objective good and evil, that is the same for everyone, and that we are bound to live by these standards. Go back and listen to the episode, Is There Objective Morality? And What is Natural Law? to give you a better understanding of those things. And, additionally, we concluded that we have an immortal soul. And we did an episode on that. So taken all together, we conclude that though we survive this earthly life, our soul survives the death of our body, and we already know that God exists. So our soul encounters our maker, and in this life we are bound to live by objective moral standards, and we are given the ability to freely do so. So it follows from those things alone that we would expect judgment at the end of this life. In addition to that, we also have an innate sense of justice. When we see that injustice is not corrected in this life, or injustice is even rewarded in this life, we yearn for some kind of justice in the life to come. That the wicked seem to prosper in this life, or that the good seem to suffer unjustly in this life. We all kind of have an innate desire to see that corrected in some way. These are just arguments not from revelation, but just from reason alone, that we would expect a judgment that we would expect to give an account of our having used our freedom well or abused our freedom. If you think about it, it's pretty interesting that freedom is one of the most hallowed and sacred words of modern society. While judgment is one of the most hated words, it's a blasphemous word, if you will, in modern society, even though the two are essentially linked, they go together. If we really believe in freedom, in autonomy or responsibility of our own action, then of course the consequences of those actions fall on us, which brings about judgment. If we choose to do something that is evil in the eyes of another, of course we bring their judgment upon us. They judge us as having done something bad. This is the reason that we don't blame animals for things that we do blame each other for because we have real freedom where animals don't have freedom in the same sense. So if we have freedom, then judgment necessarily follows. Our actions can be judged to be good or bad. And of course, in this life, those judgments differ based on the varying opinions of the people around us. But judgment is necessarily linked to freedom nonetheless. So while we always exalt our freedom and consider it the prime value in modern life, we fail to see that God also takes our freedom seriously, or really takes it more seriously than we do, because while we exalt freedom, we kind of shirk responsibility and deny the consequences of our actions if they're bad. God, however, has given us this gift of freedom and takes it very seriously. He didn't create us to be robots. He created us with freedom so that we might cooperate with his will freely. And based on whether or not our actions, our free actions, are good or evil in the infallible judgment of God, who is truth and goodness itself, then obviously we would expect consequences. 
we can't at the same time exalt our individual freedom and liberty while also saying that salvation is for all or that what we do in this life doesn't really mean anything in the life to come. Basically saying that the way Hitler used his freedom and the way that St. Francis used his freedom really has no consequences in eternity. Now, we obviously don't want to hold that, so therefore we can see that judgment makes a lot of sense. Now, moving on to the actual revealed truth of the reality of judgment, in the words of Christ, we have a number of verses we could use from the Gospels. For example, Matthew chapter 16, verse 27. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Matthew 12, verses 36 and 37. I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Matthew chapter 25, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. John chapter 5 verse 27, and he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. John chapter 12 verse 48, he who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. Matthew chapter 10 verse 15, truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Matthew chapter 3 verse 12, his winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Matthew chapter 25, verse 46, And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And so it becomes clear that Christ is telling us about the reality of judgment, the reality of heaven and hell, and their eternity. We also have countless quotations from the other New Testament letters that we don't really need to go into because we have the words of Christ. But we also have the testimony of the letter to the Hebrews, which says in chapter 9, verse 27, it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. So on the one hand, we have Christ describing what we would call the general judgment, that is the judgment at the end of time when Christ comes again and judges us before all of humanity. In Hebrews, we have the description of the judgment that takes place immediately upon our death. So that's why this episode is entitled The Judgments rather than The Judgment, because we know that once we die, our lot is either eternity in hell or eternity in heaven, or eternity in heaven preceded by a period of purification and purgation. So there is a judgment that happens immediately upon our death, particular judgment, Christ judging us in particular, judging our actions, our use of freedom, and telling us our eternal lot. The Catechism of the Council of Trent, which was the catechism produced by the Council of Trent in the 16th century, describes the two judgments this way, quote, the first takes place when each one of us departs this life, for then he is instantly placed before the judgment seat of God, where all that he has ever done or spoken or thought during life shall be subjected to rigid scrutiny. This is called the particular judgment. The second occurs when on the same day and in the same place all men shall stand together before the tribunal of their judge, that in the presence and hearing of all human beings of all times each may know his final doom and sentence. The announcement of this judgment will constitute no small part of the pain and punishment of the wicked, whereas the good and just will derive great reward and consolation from the fact that it will then appear what each one was in life. This is called the general judgment." End quote. And to further explain the reason that there is this second general judgment before all, the same catechism gives the following reasons. Quote, 
Those who depart this life sometimes leave behind them children who imitate their conduct, dependents, followers, and others who admire and advocate their example, language, and actions. Now by all these circumstances, the rewards or punishments of the dead must needs be increased. Since the good or bad influence of example, affecting as it does the conduct of many, is to terminate only with the end of the world. Justice demands that in order to form a proper estimate of all these good or bad actions and words, a thorough investigation should be made. This, however, could not be without a general judgment of all men. Moreover, as the character of the virtuous frequently suffers from misrepresentation, while that of the wicked obtains the commendation of virtue, the justice of God demands that the former recover, in the public assembly and judgment of all men, the good name of which they had been unjustly deprived before men." End quote. So, to put it in another way, the first reason is that great sinners cause scandal and lead others to sin, not just in their own time, but as history proceeds on after their death. So, for example, if we were to assume that Marx was in hell upon his particular judgment, the consequences of his philosophy, which has led to the death of hundreds of millions, will be taken into account and intensify his punishment in eternity. Now, I'm not saying that Marx is necessarily in hell, though, I mean, come on. But, assuming he were, this is a good example of someone whose bad thoughts and words caused great evil and led many others into great evil. So, this is one reason for the general judgment. On the flip side, someone like St. Benedict, for example, whose legacy caused so much good and caused so much human flourishing and led so many other people into sanctity, this will be taken into account in the general judgment, that not only is he in heaven, but that his glory will be increased by taking into account how much his good example led many others to Christ. And as the Catechism said in that quote, this can only be done when history has run its course and we reach the end of time and Christ comes again. The second reason that the Catechism gave was that many in this life who are wicked seem to prosper and are publicly deemed to be good even though privately they are wicked, while many who are actually good and virtuous and holy are publicly deemed to be wicked or bad, we desire to see this corrected before all. Kind of like I mentioned at the beginning, we have this innate sense of justice that we, we don't accept that there is no justice for those who prosper as wicked in this world and those who suffer as holy in this world. We don't accept that there's no justice for that. Well, one of the reasons for the general judgment is to satisfy that innate desire for justice. God's justice demands that this injustice be corrected before all humanity, that all humanity see people for who they really are, that the wicked be recognized as wicked before all, that the just and righteous be recognized as just and righteous before all. So in addition to this being divinely revealed, that the general judgment will happen because Christ said so, it also seems very fitting to us because we have this innate sense or innate desire for justice. Now, all of this seems rather terrifying, and there's a healthy element to that, right? That this kind of healthy fear, fear of punishment and fear of condemnation, should not just remain as fear, but it should spur us on to not just wanting to avoid punishment and avoid hell and avoid condemnation, but to positively desire eternal life with God, to positively desire the glory of life in heaven. It's important to remember too that God's mercy is always available to us while we live and breathe. No matter what we have done, no matter how wicked we have been, God's mercy is always offered to us. We always say that God's mercy is infinite, but very few people actually believe that regarding themselves or regarding others. 
You have some people that can believe anyone can be saved and they believe and preach that no matter how bad you are, God can always forgive you, but they fail to believe that in their own circumstance. They always allow themselves to be tricked into thinking that what I've done is beyond God's mercy. And then on the other hand, you have people that believe that no matter what they do, they can be saved and forgiven, but that there are certain people that are so bad that God can't forgive them. So in both instances, those people are wrong. It's an all or nothing. Either God's mercy is infinite and can apply to anyone and any sin, or it's not. If you believe that there's someone in this world who is so wicked that they literally cannot be saved, then you really don't believe in the infinity of God's mercy. Now, of course, we all have our, our opinions and there's a certain amount of common sense in thinking that someone who is entirely opposed to God or positively is a follower of Satan, we might think, well, their chances of salvation are very slim or that there's no reason to believe that they are ever going to be disposed to receive God's grace. But we still have to believe that there's a possibility of that, that God's grace can always break through no matter how hardened our will or our heart is it can always break through and move us to repentance. So it's important to keep in mind that salvation is dying in the state of grace. That no matter how much time we've wasted in sin, once we turn to God, we begin anew. God's mercy literally destroys our sin. So it's not as if you know, we confess our sins and receive absolution. We're contrite, we receive absolution that at the last judgment, God's gonna say, listen, I know I forgave that, but I'm still gonna bring it up. That's not how it works. Once God forgives our sins, he, insofar as God can forget, does forget our sins. So dying in God's grace is what we need to pray for all the time. It doesn't mean that we put it off until the end of our life. That's a very dangerous thing. We can't plan when we are contrite. And the more that we remain in sin, the less likely it is that we will ever be disposed to true repentance and to the action of God's grace. But it should be a consolation that no matter how much we think we've sinned, no matter how much time we've wasted in the past in sin, once we have true repentance, God really does forgive and forget our sins. And no matter how many times we need to ask God's forgiveness, he is always ready to give it. So praying for perseverance, that is, praying to remain in the state of grace until the moment of our death, praying that we leave this world in God's grace, is one of the most important prayers we can pray. And so I'll conclude this podcast by just reading one of those prayers. O oh my crucified Jesus, I beg of you to receive the prayer I now offer thee for my last moment, when, having desired a holy death, all my senses have failed me. At my last moments, when, therefore, my sweetest Jesus, my eyes, languid and sunken, can no longer look upon thee, remember this loving look which I now turn to thee, and have mercy on me. When my lips, dried up, can no longer kiss thy most sacred wounds, remember these kisses which I now give thee, and have mercy on me. When my cold and numbed hands can no longer clasp thy cross, remember the times that I held your crucifix with love and devotion, and have mercy on me. And when my tongue, swollen and immovable, can no longer speak, Remember my present prayers and have mercy on me. Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, I commend to you my soul. Lord Jesus crucified, have mercy on me, a sinner. Sacred heart of Jesus, I place my trust in thee. Thank you for listening to Catholic Daily Brief. Please share this podcast with your family and friends. Give us a five-star rating and a good review. And consider becoming a member at patreon.com slash catholicdailybrief. God bless.